Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. All right, episode seven, Andy Bond, welcome. Glad to be here, man. Yeah, glad to have you. First, we have to talk about how you did not wear your uh, the shoes that your wife told you to. Yeah, she picked my shoes out for me because uh, she gives me a hard time, tells me I wear grandpa's shoes everywhere. So she sent me here with my nice Tacoba boots that have been worn about four times. Uh, and they're sitting in my truck. So when she watches this, she's going to be really disappointed that <laughs> I have my, my grandpa's shoes on. But they're not Velcro, so I'm a step ahead of... Uh, some grandpas. That's true. Yeah, they're comfy, and that's all that matters at this point. I'm all right. Built for comfort, man. That's right. So shout out to your wife and her yeah. attempt to dress you well. But yeah, Michelle does what she can. Yes, we know. So uh, tell us a little bit about. So you know, this episode is going to be on first responders. Um, for anybody listening, we're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a firefighter. You know, to cover the general idea of first responders, what kind of training you get, those sort of things, so that um, the community has more understanding, empathy for those who serve on the front lines every day in crisis um, and who, you know, a lot of times are forgotten. I mean, obviously if there's an, a huge event, you have tons of fires right now over in California. Mm-hmm. It seems like half the United States is burning. Um, and, you know, 9-11, these things that firefighters got a lot of accolades for and, and rightly so. But I think to talk a little bit more about what the day-to-day looks like um, and then ways that we can help as a practice and people can help as a system to change, you know, how they support firefighters, first responders in general. So yeah, I hope people enjoy it. So tell us a little bit about um, who you are and what you currently do. Okay. Uh, My name is Andy Bond. I'm currently a certified pastoral counselor here on staff at CDC. I've been here four months and love it. Awesome. Um, And so before that, you were a firefighter. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how you became a firefighter. Okay. Uh, I got on the job in 2006 and it was a lengthy process. I got on the first time that I applied. Um, you kind of got to go through your certain steps. Uh, you got to start with a civil service test that every firefighter, every paid firefighter in the state of Louisiana takes. You have to take that test. It's pass fail. So, uh, 75 is as good as a hundred. So, um, that helps with the, you know, uh, amount of applicants, you know, and, and that's where you start. And no matter where you are on a paid department, that's where it begins. And then you submit your application to where you want to go work. And, you know, there's different fire departments and, and the whole state of Louisiana. So, uh, but I chose Shreveport and I'd applied at Bossier as well. And it was something I've always had a desire to help people. You know, I really wanted to do something to serve. I didn't really know in what capacity mm-hmm. and becoming a firefighter. Oh, I actually had applied for the police department as well, but I was, uh, canceled out of that process because I'm colorblind. Uh. So, yeah. So it worked out good, man. But I, I enjoyed, I was on the Shreveport fire department for nine years and 
uh, wouldn't change any of it. it. It helped me to become who I am today. So why did you become, you said you wanted to serve people, so you kind of had this idea of service like police officer, firefighter. What? Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. Why do you think people will choose to be firefighters for the most part? Yeah, I think it starts with a calling to serve. You know, you have to have a heart for that. And not everyone does, and that's okay. You know, we all have different gifts and abilities. And, you know, to become a firefighter for the amount of money that you make, or a police officer, or the military for that matter, you know, anything where you have a, a life or a career of service, um, we all know they're not compensated properly. Uh, you know, it's, it's low paying, but uh, you do it because you love it. And, you know, once I got on, I just, I learned so much, you know, I got on at such a young age, I was only 22. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, messed around in college a little bit and then uh, just decided that's, that's the path I wanted to take. Okay. What, what other, what other benefits, I guess, other than serving, you know, did you see as being a firefighter? How the schedule was great. You know, you only work 10 days a month, but when people hear that, they think 10, eight to five days a month, but you're at the station for 10, 24 hour shifts a month. Mm. So the schedule is great because you go in at 3 p. This is how Shreveport does it, but you go in at 3 p.m. and then you get off at 3 p.m. the next day. So there's a lot of off time. Um, you know, a lot of guys work side jobs, but the really good part is on days off. So at the end of that 10 shifts or five shifts, uh, which is a 10 day period, you get six consecutive days off. So essentially for every 10 days you work, you get six days off, mm-hmm. which is pretty good gig. Right. But you're working 10 full days, 10 full days. Right. And once you get to the station, you're there for a full 24 hours and there's some flexibility there. If something comes up and a kid's got a ball game or, you know, you want to go to the award ceremony, they, they accommodate that. But for the most part for that 24 hours from 3 PM to 3 PM, uh, you're at the station, you sleep there, you eat dinner there, breakfast, lunch, and you just, it becomes a part of your life. So the, the schedule was very appealing because on Shreveport schedule, uh, one vacation was 22 days long. So, and the longer you're on, the more time you accrue and vacation time and holiday time. And, you know, you can end up being off a pretty good bit. So, and with that line of work at first going into it for the time off was one of the reasons until, until you, you realize the experience. Yes. That, that you need it. Yeah. Like there's like, you need that six days off. Right. Like we used to joke that if there were six shifts instead of five, we'd all quit. Right. And some departments don't do that. Some departments do 24 on 48 off and that's their consecutive rotation. Mm-hmm. And I think Shreveport, they, they nailed it, you know, with five on and then six days off. Yeah. Well, going backtracking a little bit, what, um, what do you have? You said you have to take a test, right? That's kind of pass or fail. Mm-hmm. But what else do you have to do to become a fireman? So after you pass the test uh, and you submit your application to whatever department you want to get hired on, you wait for a call and then you start their hiring process. Uh, each department has its own um, own process. Shreveport, you start with that. Uh, and then there's some other tests you have to take. There's one called the TABE test which is the test for adult basic education. So once you've passed civil service, one of the first steps in the hiring process is you have to take the TAVE test. And then once you go from there, um, you have to do interview process. Uh, You have to do two interviews. Then you have to take a uh, psych evaluation, which I know we're gonna talk about in a little while. Um, 
and then you have to take a polygraph. So it's a pretty extensive process. I mean, you don't just, it's not like going and applying at some regular eight to five. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it from the time you actually take your civil service test to the time you step into the fire training academy. Um, I would say on a fast pace, it would probably be maybe six months to a year. So, and, and your score on your test stays good for, I believe, 18 months. Mm -hmm. uh, that may have changed. I've been gone for about five years now, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty lengthy process. Okay. Um, I know one of the things that, uh, you know, has been for you is that through that, through that firefighting journey and through being a um, first responder, you know, you definitely had what we would say a lot of trauma. So can you talk a little bit about um, what the experience overall was for you? Um, maybe surprises, things that were difficult, just kind of your story of being a firefighter. So you, you got signed up and then you were, you know, became a firefighter when you were 22. What's kind of like a regular day and then take us through what that looked like for you. Okay. So when I got hired August 1st of August 1st of 2006 was my first day in the training academy and it's out off of Greenwood road here in Shreveport. And you go through, um, basic for, I think it was almost 18 weeks is what it was to where at that time you're on from eight to five. So you're learning, you're going out. I had prior to that, I had taken my EMT class out at Bipsy to get prepared for when I got hired. Mm -hmm. Um, now they teach EMT basic during the academy, but in some departments, it's good to go ahead and have that uh, because they don't have the ability to teach it. Like if you're in one of the fire districts or something like that, it could potentially give you a leg up in getting hired. So for the first from August until December, uh, I was in the basic training and that's where you learn, you know, you, you, they read, they teach EMT class. You learn your fire, basic firefighting skills. There's a burn building out there and, uh, you learn how to operate the truck. So it's, it's a good, good time. You do a lot of strength and conditioning, running, uh, getting prepared for it. So that's where my career actually started. And then once I left there, uh, my first rotation was, and how much of that, not to cut you off, how much of that is, uh, so a lot of that's preparing to be a fireman, right? Before you even start, Yep. you're practicing all the drills and all the strength training and all yep. the things to be able to do the work. How much of that is like mental training? Um, I think a good bit of it because what they'll do is like in the burn building, uh, you know, you see all these TV shows, Chicago fire or, you know, station 54, whatever ones there are. And, you know, you see these guys walking into these house fires or building fires and, they're pretty much looking at each other like you and I are, which that is complete opposite of how it is. So what they'll do to help you is uh, they black out your face mask. Mm -hmm. Because when you go in a house that's on fire or a building that's on fire, um, the closer you get to it, you, you can't see. It's pitch black. And that's one of the things. So there, there are some mental sides to it that they help you with um, that help prepare you for it. You do some confined space training you know, for when you're in attics, you know, I'm a bigger guy. There's a lot of firemen that are bigger. And, you know, when you're crawling around in an attic space, um, you know, I, I didn't realize I was claustrophobic until I started doing it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you have about 75 pounds of gear on. So it adds up. So there, there is a mental aspect to it. Um, they're a, a paramilitary basic training. So, you know, you kind of have the similar, you know, your training officers kind of yelling at you, trying to make you mentally tough, but, what I learned very quickly because my first shift on the job, uh, right out of basic for the first, it's broken down into three rotations, four months at each training station. And the city of Shreveport has several training stations throughout it. And 
my first one was Central Fire Station, which is in downtown Shreveport. And I had learned everything by the book, you know, as far as EMT. We'd watched the videos and, you know, I was just, you know, no pun intended, thrown right into the fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, my very first shift on the job, still to this day from, from my buddies that I keep in touch with, was uh, one of the toughest that they've heard of. And so I'm so excited, man. I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I get to the station early that day, around 2.30, uh, report to my captain and uh, my top back end man, which is a, the senior firefighter on the truck. And uh, it was a slow shift to start. And the reason I start with this one is because it's what kind of set into motion everything that led me to this point today. Um, so I think the first run came in like after dinner and it was just, you know, a, a guy that had been assaulted. Uh, but, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, like this was at like 7.30 p.m. So I'd been at the station for about five hours thinking, oh, okay, it is like TV. You just sit around all day. Right. I had no clue what that 24 hours was going to do. It, it changed my life. So, Well, you, you said you, the first one was somebody who was assaulted. I think that's something that people don't know or think about when they think of firemen either. Um, is that they they don't realize like you guys go to a lot more than just fires absolutely right you we, go. we pulled snakes out of houses uh, I've been called for a raccoon in the house um, I mean you name it if you call 911 the fire truck's gonna show up right and there's so domestic situations yes, violence absolutely yeah, yeah the, the, the the violence that goes with it and you know with the, the police department you know, when it's a violent scene, it's at the fire officer's discretion on when they actually go in. But usually if it's domestic, we wait on the police to clear the scene and make sure it's safe. But um, absolutely shootings, stabbings. And I mean, there's pretty much everything Mm -hmm. that that you can think of, you know, kids locked in cars, pets locked in cars. You know, it's not just fires, uh, which, you know, most guys who get on think that's what it's going to be like is, oh, man, I'm going to be, you know, in fires all the time. Well, I think the last stat I heard is somewhere around like 75% of calls are, are EMS calls, mm-hmm. chest pain, heart attack, difficulty breathing, et cetera. Oh, I know. We've had to call the fire department a couple times on, you know, situations that um, – you know, with my kids swallowing a quarter or, you know, like you're calling, you're calling 911, but they send the fire department. Like, yep. you know, you don't know who to call. So mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out what to do. Yep. And it's not that you want the fire department to call, but that's who comes. You that's know? it. So and that's why most firemen are kind of a, a jack of all trades. You know, I mean, you, you learn it as you go because there's things that you get to and you're like, wow, they, like you called 911 for this. And, <laughs> but one of my training officers, um, he taught my EMT classes, Chief Lewis Johnson, and he said something when I was in that class before I ever got on the fire department that really stuck with me throughout my career is that to that person who called 911, it was an emergency. Mm-hmm. So even though we may not think it is, because it gets kind of monotonous at times, you know, I mean, you can only go, you know, so many times with picking up and helping up an elderly person who fell, and it gets that, but, but that's an emergency. You know, and um, not all calls are deemed emergent, but, you know, for for the person who's calling, they're in distress and they need help and they're looking to whoever shows up. Right. And so going back to that first shift, um, that night um, we had a, a two alarm fire, uh, ML bath caught on fire. It's like right next to the Phoenix underground. Okay. So, man, it was just 
wild. So it's a know, downtown building. Downtown building, yeah. old construction. Um, you know, so it was it was a busy shift. Uh, I think we had probably I had my first code, uh, which and that's when someone you know dies, and it was in the casino. I remember like it was yesterday. So I mean, I'm sitting here within the first 12 hours because you know the first five I was like, oh, this is slow. This is going to be you know this is nothing to this, and then immediately it's just like boom, boom, boom. So we made that first code and I was like a deer in the headlights, man. I was pretty much in the way, you know, I'd never, you know, you, you do your practicals when you get your training, but there's a difference between what you learn in basic versus being out in the real world. And that's why, you know, so much of what you learn is on the job training and it's, it's very important. And you learn from the guys that have seniority, you know, you have, you know, from your assistant chief to battalion chiefs to battalion safety officers, captains, uh, engineers, senior firefighters, and then rookies. So, I mean, there is a, a good good uh, hierarchy in place to, to help learn because you can only learn so much reading a book or watching a video. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later in that shift, this, this was when I will honestly say my life changed. Uh, it was right at relief time. We had been up all night long. Uh, and a lot of people don't know this. Like the, the firemen sleep on twin-size mattresses. Um, and me, I'm a bigger guy. There's some other bigger guys, but if you can imagine sleeping on a twin size mattress, 10 nights a month, it's not the most comfortable, you know, and I'm not saying firemen deserve Tempur-Pedics, but you know, it, (laughs) there's some, there's some very tough night sleep at the station. I mean, well, I think that's, I mean, but I do think that you could say that, like you could say that you guys who are out there doing these hard jobs that nobody else is doing for the masses who are taking all these calls, should have the best quality stuff like yeah. you should have Tempur-Pedic like we mm-hmm. we should be able to have a system in place where there's funding yeah. to pay you guys to do the things just like we you know we talked about with policing like there needs to be funding for those things and I think you saying that you know nobody wants to complain no fireman no military no first responder cop whatever's gonna be like oh yeah I need a Tempur-Pedic right I mean yeah. like well we got this but the the point of even having this discussion is for people to realize like y- you guys are doing this really hard job that's very, you know, very few people are doing statistically to take care of the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And yet you're having to sleep on a twin mattress that's uncomfortable during yep. the shifts in which you're supposed to be first responders. Like you're yep. supposed to be responding to crisis mm-hmm. with your A game. Yep. But you might have just gotten out of a like, you know, four hour rest that was restless and that, you know, your back hurts and yeah. you didn't sleep well and you're falling off. And Yeah, absolutely. And that's, Four hours is on a good night at some stations. Yeah. I mean, there's some where they don't even make their beds because they know they're not going to get in them. Mm-hmm. But you also got to factor in there's always firefighters on duties at stations. So that bed's not just getting slept in by one person eight hours every day. That bed is slept on by three different people constantly. So, I mean, I want to say I was on for nine years and we got new mattresses twice. And these are beds that are everyone's sleeping on every single night mm-hmm. um so constant use constant use constant and uh that's something i'll talk about here in a little bit it's, it's station life but um going back to the the run is it was right at relief time i had hopped on the rescue truck so city of shreveport has two rescue trucks rescue one and rescue nine one's at central fire station one is uh station nine um in cedar grove and they go around they're they're heavy rescue they're the ones that carry the jaws of life and they have um the tools to extricate people from uh 
car accidents or whatever that they're called to. They have like the, the heavy rescue stuff. And we got a call to go unlock a car because first people call like, like you would think pop a lock, you know, I'm, I lock my keys in, but a lot of times people they'll panic and call 911. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's a child in the car or there is a pet in the car, um, obviously, absolutely that is a, an emergency. But if neither of those are in there, you know, and you just lock your keys in, we're going to, you know, at that time we'll tell you, you probably don't have to call pop a lot. We may try and get it up for fun, but, um, <laughs> you know, if there was someone in there or something, uh, that's different. So we had headed, it was down arrow drive in downtown and a call came in, uh, on I-20 right at, in between Hearn and Greenwood, uh, for a second rescue truck. So, which is not that uncommon, but rare enough to where if they're calling for a second rescue truck, you know, something, something's going on. So, uh, my captain at the time was like, okay, you know, rescue one's responding. So man, right as we merge onto, uh, we're coming down common, we're getting on I 20, um, and you can just see the black plume of smoke. And so we get there, we're riding up. We were the second rescue truck called to the scene. And they were trying to get an 18-wheeler had ran up on the back of a Lincoln Town car. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it was just a massive fire going on. Um, and we get on scene. And now this is, again, my very first shift on the job. And we'd been up all night. I'd already had one code, one two-alarm fire, which having all three of these things in one 24-hour period, it happens, but it's highly unlikely. It's not common that you have this type of critical runs you're going to get them throughout the course of your time but not all in the first shift mm -hmm. so we get on site and again first shift i'm just sitting there in the hip pocket of my top back end man a guy named will um and there was a baby uh that was trapped so they had already extricated the mom and the dad and um uh, the baby was in the back and I mean the 18 wheeler was literally sitting in the front seat of this car and I just remember hopping off of the truck and I know they didn't expect much from me because in a situation like this you know you're kind of hey rookie sit back and watch yeah stay out of the way yes and and I was glad to do that <laughs> but I'll never forget the look on a guy named Captain Paul's face he had a uh, he had his two his index and his middle finger in the smallest area possible trying to do CPR on this infant as the the um, they were trying to fight back the fire around him trying to get this truck off of this car so they could extricate this baby and long story short uh, the mm. baby ended up dying and I'll never forget uh, my top back end man at that time his name was Will he grabbed a, a yellow blanket off of the truck and, you know, if you see someone covered in a yellow blanket, you know, when you're passing an accident, um, that means it didn't turn out well, uh, that, that you're going to have to wait on the corner. And it's, it's sad, you know, and I'm, again, very first shift on the job. And I'm just, that was probably my first experience with trauma. Mm -hmm. And I did not realize how much that one shift and that one run contributed to PTSD that showed up later mm -hmm. and I remember sitting on the side of I-20 on the guardrail and I was literally sobbing because I was thinking is is this what every shift's like 
Like, is this what it's going to be? And there's no way I can do this. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I remember two guys sat beside me and they put their arm around me and said, man, we've never seen somebody have a first shift like this. And I guess I came out of the gate strong, you know, (laughs) I mean, I go from, you know, code to alarm fire to a, a pediatric, you know, trauma code that we didn't even end up working because, you know, the baby was dead. So it was, uh, it was tough, you know, to be a 22 year old kid seeing that kind of stuff. And again, going back to earlier, no matter how much training you do, no matter how many videos you watch, you know, the first time you're out there and you see something like that, it does change you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was tough. You yeah, know, that, that one stuck with me. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, that yeah. story. And, you know, when it, you know, we'll keep going, but you know, thank you for, and thank you for everybody listening. That's a firefighter for doing that and for being there and for carrying that burden for the rest of us. So, mm-hmm. you know, that people can sleep at night and be safe and realize that people are on call to show up mm-hmm. for your emergency, whether they feel like it's one or if it actually is one or not. So I, I yeah. appreciate that. Um, one thing we talked about with policing, um, and you're saying it too at the same time. And, and Greg, he kind of said, it's like, no matter what, and military, I mean, in my experience with being in the army, like, yeah, there's no amount of training to some degree, um, that you're going to get to deal with death, mm-hmm. right? And from, from a Christian perspective, death is, you know, kind of the anti-gospel. It, it wasn't God's design for us to die. So when we see it and it happens, it, it stirs up everything in us that's opposite of what God intended was, which was for us to live forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it's unsettling, you know, the sights, the smells, the sounds of death, like all of that is is awful. And so, you know, you can't really replicate that in training you're, you're not going to yeah. like take people and go okay we're going to let people die and you're going to get used to it yeah and de- you know you desensitize yourself to some mm-hmm. degree through the training yeah. but then still on that first time you know there's nothing like it i mean you can do drills to get shot at you can do drills to run into fires and see yeah. dead people you know but then when you experience it it is overwhelming uh your yeah. senses your sensory overload your emotional state mm-hmm. and anything that has been in your life that maybe you haven't dealt with yep you know, that's underlying and we'll kind of talk about that. However, I do think that when I said earlier, like what kind of mental training do you do? I do think that, um, for most first responders and then most things in general, pastors, counselors, you know, we don't get a lot of conversation about what this is going to be like emotionally. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't really talk about that. Was that kind of the same in the fire department? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you, sent me last night kind of the stuff we'd be going over and he asked about a, a mental evaluation and I got to thinking like you get the one when you first get on the job and that's it you get an annual physical but never again do they give you another psych evaluation to to follow up so it's like once you're in you're in and the thing about the trauma is what I've learned through my experience and then going back to get my certification is like it's, it's not as simple as that. You know, you, you have to reevaluate your, the mental side of it. And, um, you know, guys, they, they try, but when, if you, if you're on for 30 years and you only had one psych evaluation, um, and you hold all that in, man, it, it eventually is going to come out. And that's where, um, you know, it, it, it plays a big role in it. Yeah. And I think we have to think about like, what does that mean? You made it 30 years. Like, you know, did you make it 30 years and are you still married and do you have good relationships with your kids and do you have, mm-hmm. you know, alcoholism or depression or anxiety or some mental health disorder? Like, you know, 
evaluating these jobs and these careers as first responders and in general, I mean, I, this is about society. We're just using it, you know, firefighters as the lens to look through. Um, but the importance of establishing, establishing like good routine and good, you know, consistent care mm-hmm. and awareness and systems in place. This is not firefighters problem. This is the system in which they fall into problem, right? Mm-hmm. This is America's problem in my opinion, yeah. Yeah. that we're not, even aware that mental health is supposed to be taken care of on mm-hmm. a regular basis. Cause when you said that, like, you know, so many people say that, well, we got a psycho valve. Yeah. Oh, I'm a pilot. I got a psycho valve. Oh, I'm, I'm a cop. I got a psycho valve. It's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, like you sit down with somebody who doesn't know you one time, mm-hmm. they ask you a list of questions. You answer them as honestly as you're going yeah. to. As, and in some ways you don't even know if you're lying. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't even know. I mean, so many people in counseling come in and say, no, I have no trauma, you know, and then we get into five, six sessions and it's like, oh, you've had like so much trauma and they don't even know that it's trauma because it's so normalized in our culture. Absolutely. And I know we've talked about it before, but, you know, I know that so many experiences of firefighters, they come in before they even join the fire department mm-hmm. or the police department or a first responders job and they already have their own they've been through child divorce, they've been through abuse, they've been through, you know, conflict and alcohol and drugs and all the things. Mm-hmm. And they come to the force or, or the, the service, you know, network in which they're going to come to. And nobody's like, okay, let's talk about all these things. And let's, let's help you heal from some of those. And then this first year, we're going to work on that so that when you integrate in, you got a kind of a fresh start. Yeah. Or an awareness of what triggers are going to happen and come up for you. Mm-hmm you know, based on the past trauma that you've had. Absolutely. But of course, you know, that's us as counselors saying it, but the goal is for people to really think it's not as cookie cutter and black and white as simple as everybody was healthy. They joined the fire department and now the fire department traumatized them. Yeah, it does, mm-hmm. but it's on top of whatever. Yeah. It just adds to, yeah. Yeah. Cause we all, I think just about everyone has some sort of childhood trauma, something that happened. And, um, I want to go back real quick sure. before I forget about, you brought up the spiritual side of it, you know, and as far as like that wasn't God's design for death and the way that we, you know, suffer now because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as, as a first responder, and I can only speak to my experience as a firefighter, but there's a lot of things that you see that make you question God. You mm-hmm. know, if, if you go in like me and I didn't have a strong faith, I was raised in church and um, I checked off all the boxes, but it wasn't until I was 35 that I actually met and started following Jesus. And, you know, for my entire firefighter career, you know, I, I had a, um, I was kind of angry at God, you know, because I, I didn't understand. I mean, when you go into an apartment and you see a two-year-old that's been beaten and raped by her uncle and she's dead, you know, when you get back to the station, you're laying there thinking, man, what, what kind of God allows something like this to happen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that happens, unfortunately, more than, than you would like. I mean, when you see a, a child shot in the head accidentally, you know, and you're just thinking, how, how does this happen? So, for me... Right, because you're, fa- you're in American family homes. Yes. Right, I mean, you're, you're in, in all, across socioeconomic status, you're mm-hmm. in these very intimate moments in yep. life, and in most of the time, emergencies. So, they're the worst-case scenarios. Yep. You know, and you get to see on some level just how bad things are, Mm -hmm. you know, not just from a fire emergency, you know, situation, but from a systemic family systems relationship 
right? Because all of these things are relationships. Yep. You know, these things that you just described that are horrible, they come out of broken relationships and broken people. Mm -hmm. And so your day in and day out vision is how bad things are, mm -hmm. not how good things are. I mean, I'm sure they have yeah. their moments, but yeah, a lot of times you're, you're the majority of what you're going into is crisis, not celebration. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, you know, sitting back and, and I look and think of all the uh, runs I had, like the difficult ones. And again, I keep backtracking because there's things I'm thinking of as we go um, and talking about like not being able to replicate it in training. Like there is no way that you can ever replicate the screams of a mom who you just told her infant is dead. Mm -hmm. You can't. And that stuff sticks with you. You know, you, you make a run and you're hanging out. I mean, you can literally go from buying groceries to cook hamburgers and French fries at the fire station to three or four minutes later, you're standing in someone's worst moment of their life. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that run, you're supposed to just get back on the truck and head back to pick your groceries up. Go make burgers. And, and cook. Yeah. And that's what ends up happening. Um, but there's a lot of things that just can't be replicated. I mean, there's there's screams that I can remember that I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like, it, it's just, it's hard. Yeah. And it all it all ended up coming to a head with me. You know, it, it, it brought me down, you know, which I needed to be, you know. And now I'm, I have faith and I, I follow Jesus and, um, you know, I've learned to, to not ask why uh, because I'm not going to get an answer. Uh, but those are things that as citizens and whoever is listening to this, uh, whether they're the Shreveport Fire Department or your local fire department, like having an understanding and empathy for what the police and firemen do. Because I don't know of hardly any other professions where you can go from asleep at 1.13 a.m. in the morning in a, in a fire station to... At 120, you could literally be running into uh, an apartment fire to save some children. I mean, there's not any other profession like it because uh, even the cops work either eight or 12 hour shifts. But as a firefighter, you're you're living there, and it it takes its toll for sure. So tell me a little bit about that toll and kind of what it took on you. Finish that story. Uh, you know, that was your first night, but obviously. Yeah. Through some of the stories you said, that was, you said how long? Nine years. Nine years of those yep. stories every mm -hmm. week. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there were times where, you know, I had gone to, you can work at different stations. Uh, in Shreveport, there's 22 stations, one of which is the airport, uh, which you have to have certain qualifications. But I worked at each of the stations and, and not all shifts were that way. I don't want people to think that every shift is as bad as that first one was. Uh, but they can be, you know, because even at the downtime, at well, the let's just say every month. Okay, every month. Right. I mean, yeah. at least every month you're going to have some of that stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people die every day, right? You know? And and someone has to be there to help the families and and you know to make and answer those calls. So it was. Uh, well, I think what you're trying to do is, you know, we've talked about this is minimize trauma too. Like, you know, for firefighters that are listening to this or their loved ones. It's like we don't really want to talk about how bad it is because what? Because you don't want to appear weak. You don't want to appear like you're yeah. being dramatic or you're being whiny. You signed up for it. Mm -hmm. Like this was your choice. You don't have to be a firefighter if you don't want to. Yeah. Like these are things that people say or at least think mm -hmm. to minimize the experience. They do. But the fact is someone has to do it. Yeah. And those things are still happening. And if no one does it, those things are going to go unchecked. And that makes it worse for everyone. It does. And I would think a lot of those people who have that mentality 
have never been on the phone with the 911 dispatcher and waiting to hear those sirens. Right. When you're, again, in the worst moment of your life and you can't wait to hear those sirens in the distance for help to show up. Because when people are in crisis, they just want help. You know, in, the, in those situations, they're just waiting to hear it. Um, but going back to the toll it took on me, so in nine years, you know, I got like every firefighter, police officer, you know, I got plenty of stories and, um, but it took its toll on me because I didn't have healthy coping mechanisms. And I turned to alcohol, uh, opioids, uh, pornography. I mean, I was doing anything I can to kind of feel good and take my mind off of the things that I had been exposed to. And, you know, it, it wore down, you know, I did a video, um, that had come out a while back uh, for a refresher for firefighters to watch. And it kind of, you know, made its way around on Facebook here locally and, you know, explaining the toll it takes on you. And I, I talked about having a, carrying a bag around and each bag uh, or the bag you carry around each traumatic call, or in this case is traumatic events in your life. Even if you're not a firefighter is like putting another stone in that bag and eventually it becomes too heavy to carry. And if you don't address the trauma, um, you know, because there's no cure for PTSD, but you can you can manage it with talk therapy and there are medications that you can take to help with it. Uh, but eventually, for me, uh, August 5th, 2018, my bag finally got too heavy and I literally had a, a breakdown. You know, I completely I ended up in the hospital. I started having panic attacks. I thought I was dying. And it was from not just nine years of fire department trauma. But also when I left there, stress from my new job, family issues. I mean, it was a whole list of things that where I'm at now, looking back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that was so much trauma. How did you make it 35 years without having this type of breakdown? Mm -hmm. And it just it weighed heavy. Well, I think, you know, that's the point is it's you didn't make it 35 years. Yeah. Like you were breaking down the whole time. Yeah. And, uh, and people don't realize that, you know, when you're, when you're in that and you don't see it and you're unhealthy and you're traumatized and you haven't recovered and you have no awareness of mental health, you have no awareness of taking care of yourself, good relationships, healthy boundaries, all these coping skills you talked about, then you think you're okay. Mm -hmm. Because typically you're measuring yourself against worse things. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You're like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, smoking crack and murdering people. So I'm kind of okay. like, yeah, we do that, whether you're military, fire department, mm -hmm. first responder of any kind. But if we as you get healthy and you meet Jesus, if you meet a healthy person, and you start measuring yourself against them. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, wait, I'm way away from yes. what a healthy person is and does and behaves like. Mm -hmm. And you start realizing that the gap between you and health is way farther than you the gap between you and the thing that you think is so bad. Yeah. And there were times, you know, that's spot on. I, I thought I was healthy, but I would be watching the news with my wife or my friends or my parents and something just horrific comes on the screen and they are all just like, can you believe something like that would happen? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. People are terrible. Like, yeah, I can <laughs> right. believe that happens. You know, like I, I can completely believe that someone just went and shot three people. Mm -hmm. Like, because you become so desensitized to it, you have to. You have to be able to separate it. But what happened with me is, well, you I, have to in the system that's in place. Yes, you in the system. Yeah, right. That's that's kind of the the conversation is like we say that like 
even military training. Well, you have to go to basic and you have to go to SEALs training because you, you're going to have to be able to do amoral things, mm-hmm. kill people, survive death, do these things. Yeah. And yeah, you can't be loving and empathetic and shoot somebody at yep. the same time mm-hmm. in the systems that we have in place. And so yep. the whole idea of asking why and the podcast and having these conversations is to figure out, is there any wiggle room in that? Yeah. You know, is there a way to make it to where you can be a firefighter and a first responder and a police officer and it not be so traumatic Yeah, to where you can kind of live in the in-between and see it and deal with it, but not have to disassociate every time and over time to where you spent the entire time you're there, you're disassociated from your family and your friends on some level. Yeah. Right. And we're not speaking for everyone because some people might be out there just killing it and they're, yeah. you know, maybe they don't have any trauma and they don't yeah. disassociate, but I'd for like the rest, yeah, for the yeah. rest of us who have been first responders, you know, that's, we know that's not the case. Yeah. And it does, you know, because over time when it's not dealt with properly, you lose that ability to have empathy or compassion. And, you know, one of the, times that came to my mind was we had a guy it was uh, my fifth shift I was headed on vacation it was 2:20 on the day I got off so like my relief man was on the way and a uh, call came in for a self-inflicted gunshot wound and at this time I was at station 22 which is like the slowest in the city you know which is essentially the the retirement home you know you go there and you don't make a whole lot of runs but um so we get there and we pulled down the street and this gentleman had decided to take his own life, you know, put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his head off, you know. And what was crazy about it is his brother and his friend had just been with him all day and he sent him to the store to go get hamburgers and french fries they were fixing to cook. Like, and they come home and like they literally have their Kroger bags in their hand and he's dead. So I remember that this is kind of the beginning of when I realized something was not right with me. Because I was mad at this guy. Not like not for what he did to his family, but because I was supposed to be getting off in 10 minutes. And he inconvenienced me by killing himself mm. 10 minutes before my guy got there. And it wasn't until several years later that I realized, oh my gosh, what, what have I become? Like, mm. how did I get to this point to where I devalue human life so much because I don't want to deal with it that... I think to myself that this guy inconvenienced me by killing himself at 220 and not 240. Mm. Like that's how bad it had gotten. Yeah. And then the, the, I guess I'll say funny part of that story is, so I was spotting a truck that that same shift, that same run, I was backing the driver up because you have to have a spotter as you're backing up the fire trucks. You have the driver backing up and you have a firefighter standing outside. I actually back, I backed, the driver into a mailbox. I, you know, I had no idea. I didn't get off of work till six o'clock that day because I had to go take a drug test and a, and a blood alcohol test. <laughs> so it was almost like the universe, instant karma, like you inconsiderate jerk. Like this people are suffering here and you're literally mad. I, I cussed the guy out. I was like, I can't believe this bleep, bleep, bleep guy would do this to me. And man, this was probably closer towards the end of my time there, mm-hmm. uh, because man, it was just—I was just a, a very fragile stack, stack of cards just waiting to crumble, and it had all just compiled to where you just hop back on the truck and go back to the station and start watching your movie again. You oh, know? absolutely! You know, I, when I was in uh, Katrina, it was similar. It, you know, in a more confined, quick scenario, but you know, 
the first couple of days we were there, you know, people were passing out and having all these issues and, you know, I'm trying to give them water and they're having seizures and I'm holding them while they're doing it. And after like three days, you know, 24 hours of every hour being that I'm just stepping over people, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, you just become, you have to, in order for you to survive, you can't feel everything. Yeah. And then by not feeling, yeah, you lose that empathy. You, you know, I wouldn't say that you dehumanize them. It's just, they're not human anymore. Yeah. Right. It, it's not that you don't see them as having value. It's that nothing has value. Yeah. You know, nothing that doesn't have anything to do with you doing the next thing you want to do. Yeah. But then here's the thing, especially with firefighters and police officers is at the end of that shift, I would get off at three o'clock and I'd have to go coach my son's baseball team at five thirty. Mm-hmm. So I just saw the worst things that people could imagine. And then I, I put my mask on when I leave the fire station. Um, and that was if I didn't stop to get a six or 12 pack uh, to go home and coach, Right. you know, and then I, I go home to my wife and my family and she's like, why are you, why are you not talking? I'm just like, ah, I was a rough shift, you know, cause I have a very inquisitive wife, but I wasn't ever going to subject her to those stories. Um, I mean, she knows now because once I finally hit that wall and, you know, my bag got too heavy and I started drowning, um, a lot of it came to the light. But, you know, when you see a firefighter or a police officer out, you know, you know, most of them firefighters either cut grass. You know, the guy who built this building is a firefighter. He's, mm-hmm. he's you know, his dad was a fireman. And but, you know, they all have second jobs. But you have to think, like, what has this guy dealt with? You know, because just in the last 24 hours or week, yeah, you know, I don't think people think about it. No. You know, I think people see firemen and just like, I mean, and I'm even guilty of that. Like we, we live in, we, we used to live in South Islands and there's a fire department at the end and we walk mm-hmm. our kids up, you know, and yeah. they get, you know, Grady and Jude want to climb in the fire, you know, and I, you know, you don't think what do they, what do they just get out of? What did this yeah. fire truck just see? What do these firemen just do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're, we're over there inconveniencing them, you know, by letting yeah. our kid climb around in the yeah. car. But I will say this, having kids, because when you're away from your family, you don't mind, and especially if you're a father, you don't mind having kids come up. Like, oh, I no, they loved it. it. Yeah, all the fire departments are su- super awesome. That's why we kept doing it. I mean, if they would have been yeah. rude, I wouldn't have done yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. But another thing, you know, because we live in a society where everyone wants to complain and they think about it, like we would have people call and complain to either dispatch or the, the chief on duty that the fire truck was parked in the fire lane at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Like, and people would say, you know, who, who do y'all think y'all are parking in the fire lane? And like, you really want to look at them and go, like, like, you don't see the fire department logo here? Like, <laughs> you know, do you want us to have to run all the way across the Walmart parking lot if you're the one calling 911? Uh-huh. And they don't think about that kind of stuff. And I can't tell you how many times we were sitting in line at the grocery store and some absolutely just mean citizen would go, oh, so this is what we're buying y'all to eat tonight, huh? Y'all are eating steaks on our dime? No. You're not like as a firefighter, like you pay for your meals while you're at the station. The citizens don't pay for that. Mm-hmm. Like they're and yeah, like they give you a yes, fire department credit card. Absolutely. Like they act like you're sitting there, you know, like, oh, we're coming to eat them ribeyes with y'all. We're paying for them. No, you're not. Like we're paying for them with our low wage and our money from cutting grass on the side or whatever your side job is. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. So that's, so you got all this trauma that you're dealing with and all this stress and, and just this very unique constant you know issues that you go through and then on top of that you get paid minimal you know yeah money absolutely it for me right towards my i got my last w9 
uh, or W two, whatever it is. And like I saw that in that calendar year, I had made thirty four thousand dollars, and I was I, I was just thinking, why? Right, because you, I mean, the toll that you guys and ladies take on your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health for $34,000 a year, Mm -mm. you know. Because then you have to have a side job. I mean, everyone knows a fireman who does something. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, they do about 20 things in my life. Oh, cut fences, cut your grass, build the building. Yeah. All of it. Because you can't make it off of one income. And because usually they're actually really good and quality and consistent and, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a good brotherhood there of guys that are, are plumbers, uh, contractors that that you can use uh, to help uh, daycare owners. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And inside the department, we'd always try and support each other's businesses and help each other out. But yeah, it's it's tough, you know, when you look at how much you make. And you know, I, I don't know the exact date, but I know I got on in 2006, and even. I want to say at least eight to 10 years prior to that. So we'll call it 2000, let's see, 96, somewhere around there. Uh, the Shreveport Fire Department hasn't had a raise. And wow. if, yes, they haven't. And That's insane. they are losing paramedics left and right to other states. Like they're getting trained here, but and you can't blame a young firefighter, a guy who's 24 years old, and here in Shreveport, he's making peanuts compared to the national average. And he has an opportunity to go work in Frisco, Texas, and start out making $60,000 a year. I mean, the, the, the pay gap is, it's insane. Yeah. Even, even from just here to across the river. And people don't think you about that. Yeah, in Bozier. Yeah. yeah. You know, Bozier makes more money. And, sure. But these guys are leaving for other departments because they have the ability to make more money and provide for their families. Yeah, and and I mean in general, even sixty thousand dollars, in my opinion, is not enough. Like yeah. I know you're again, you're going up in that trauma. Like, yes, it's really bad here in Treeport for that, but the reality is, is nationally, what firefighters get paid in general is mm-hmm. garbage compared to what they're doing. It's not, you know, and I think that's something to point out. Just our value in society of. You know, how do we put value on something? Well, we pay for it. We put structure in place that's helpful for it. We take care of it along the way. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because on a state governmental level, these things are paid for by tax dollars and by the cities and by the states. Yep. But they're the least taken care of things, doing mm-hmm. the most vital jobs possible for yep. us as citizens. Mm-hmm. And yet you have business, you know, private companies and private security and private you know, agencies who have fancy, nice things, who get taken care of, who have better... You know, equipment. Yeah. Speaking of equipment, we talked about that bill that didn't pass. Uh, yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I have, you know, a lot of my good friends are still on the job and I, I talk with them and try and encourage them because uh, towards the end of last year, um, polit- from for political reasons, um, at least that's what I believe, there was a, a bond proposal that didn't pass that would have helped the Shreveport Fire Department and I think the police department as well. I don't know for sure, but I know the fire department. Um, to help get some new equipment and the citizens in a way to I guess revolt they didn't vote for that and I I know with these proposals sometimes there's some language in there that someone slides in there that people don't agree with but this one directly affected the Shreveport Fire Department and their ability 
to get new equipment and new fire trucks. Yeah, I think that was when it was on the same ballot with when uh, Adrian Perkins won. Yes. Because uh, I remember voting and being like, oh, this is super important for them yeah. to get. But yeah, it is weird. I mean, when you're just the average person, you're like, I don't know what this means. So you yeah. call somebody, I called somebody, I'm like, they're like, no, yeah. this directly, I think we we're actually at the fire department with our kids and they were like, yeah. no, this directly affects yeah. us getting new trucks, us getting new equipment, yeah. us providing better care mm-hmm. for everybody. Well, and the, actually this one, the most recent one was last year. Okay. And I don't know if you remember when Mayor Perkins didn't, he, he wasn't going to allow Shreveport police or fire personnel over to the Trump rally. Oh, okay. And that was when, uh, you know. Oh, everybody was mad about that. So yes. they didn't vote for the. Absolutely. Because they thought they were hurting Adrian. That's it. We're, yeah. we're going to show Mayor Perkins and we're not going to vote for this. When, when it just really hurt all the people that they're. Absolutely. Supporting. Yes. It got so bad that buddies that I still have, they were having to buy their own paper towels for the station. Like they were having to purchase that stuff. And I get it. Everyone has their stance on politics. That's, that's okay. That's good. That's our right as an American. But when you look at the people you're hurting by voting this down, the very people that are trying to come and help you, because I'm not kidding when I tell you there's fire trucks. When you see the white fire trucks driving around town, every now and then you'll see one or two because those are the reserve trucks. Uh-huh. Those are literally the oldest reserve trucks. And I want to say they're like 30 years old. And they're, they keep them running, you know, because they're still going to answer the call. The shop's still going to bust their behind to keep this equipment going. But the, the people that that affected, they had no idea. Mm. These families, um, it's a safety issue. You know, because the Shreveport Fire Department does a dang good job with their training. I mean, they they try and do the best they can with what they have to work with, you know, and they're out there providing uh, so many different services, whether it be the ambulance coming. There's 10 ambulances in the city of Shreveport. And um, but those guys, they they need new equipment. So to make a political statement, we're going to bite the hand that feeds us, essentially, yeah. you know, that helps us because I have been on the end of that 911 call waiting for someone to show up and there's something about hearing those sirens when you're in an emergency and it brings you a even if it's for an instant a slight sense of peace oh yeah and now you know i mean they're having to to shut stations down sometimes Mm -hmm. because they don't have the manpower because these paramedics are leaving to go work other places where they're doing the exact same job but making pennies on the dollar Mm -hmm. and you can't blame them it's crazy no you can't so um uh, talk to me a little bit about just daily life. What else, uh, you know, is, is difficult about being a fireman that we could, you know, kind of address. I know we talked about, we talked about finances. We're talking about the daily struggles of shift change. But, um, one of the things that I was reading was, you know, the divorce rate, you know, the, the being a parent, like having to do all those things, re- intimate relationships is another thing that, you know, I've seen several firefighters and it's one of those things where in order to, survive and function in this atmosphere you get desensitized to all that so then like that's not healthy Mm -mm. no and that's something that i think the national uh, the the divorce rates over 50 percent i think over first responders it's over 60 percent and you're away from home so much again 10 full nights a month your your spouse whether it's you know if you're a male or female firefighter your husband or wife is a single parent essentially those 10 nights a month they're picking the kids up without you they're doing homework without you they're going to ball games without you so it takes its toll on marriages you know because a lot of guys there's still this macho mentality this macho 
uh, you know, we're, we're not going to talk about what we struggle with, you know, because you want to be the tough guy. You know, you don't want to go back and sit around and cry because guys are probably, probably going to make fun of you, you know. Yeah, and, and like, who are you going to talk to? Because that's yeah. my problem is like the system of care mm-hmm. in which, you know, mental health counseling therapy is normalized is non-existent. Yep. So as you've been talking about this the whole time, I'm like, yeah, you should be talking about these things regularly, mm-hmm. you know, weekly, daily. Yep. There should be someone on staff, on site, or very close in relationship to the fire department who knows the guys and girls, who know, has a relationship, mm-hmm. who has rapport, who checks in, who sees people. So then when, you know, this person has this dead kid situation that they go through, they can say, hey, next before next shift, you need to go see, you know, the therapist process. Mm-hmm. No, it's not going to fix all of it. But just knowing that you can do that minimizes the tra- traumatic effect that these things have to people. Yeah. Right. We know that through research that knowing that you're going to have a therapist to talk to about the event you're currently in mm-hmm. means you don't have to dump it on your wife. Yeah. You also don't have to hide it from your wife. Yep. You don't have to dump it on the other firemen, but you don't have to hide it from the other firemen. Yeah. You get to go to a therapist or a counselor and talk and process, get it out. And then when you're at home, instead of being like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it because it was hard. Yep. You did talk about it. So now you either can talk about it or you can choose to not talk about it, but you're not sitting there depressed and anxious and irritable and, yeah, suppressing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, the the fire department again, which they, I wanted to say, which leads to guys being, you know, tough. So, you know, this is it's not a downplay on men like men didn't create this mm-hmm. idea of toughness. Yep. I mean, we do. We're responsible for our own accountability to how we share and how we become vulnerable. But it's the systems in place which set you in this double bind that you think tough is holding it all together. Mm-hmm. You think strong is not talking making fun, seeing a dead body and laughing at it, you know, making, you know, really inappropriate jokes about whoever you just went and saw. Like that's what happens in these systems because you get so desensitized that everything is normal and then everything's a joke. And anybody who takes anything serious is like, oh dude, you're ridiculous or you need to chill out or which then breaks the only safety relationship you have, which is the guys that you have to be on the front lines with. Yeah. And if you can't trust them, even in a toxic way, yeah then who can you trust? Absolutely. And, you know, that's gallows humor. You know, it's that, right, it's that yeah, dark yeah. side of humor. And and I remember going back to, again, it was my rookie rotation, my second station, which was Station 8, which is at the fairgrounds. And we made a, got a call. We were at the grocery store. Uh, there was three of us on the truck. And call came in for a, a hanging. And so we get there, and we roll up on scene, and there's a lady in the front yard just losing her mind, right? And... We got get off the truck and like, what's going on here? Well, come to find out, this guy, you know, he had decided to take his own life. He barricaded himself in. We get in there. There's nothing we can do. This was, you know, again, my my first year. I was just so, you know, wet behind the ears. Didn't know what, you know, I was learning, but I, I didn't know how to cope then. And I, I never learned to cope in my career, which led to what happened to me. But um, I remember the guy. He had he had a, his cell phone was ringing on the floor, and he was sitting there right in front of us. You know, just hanging from the, the ceiling and uh one of the guys acted one of the other firemen acted like he picked up the phone and said oh yeah he, he can't come to the phone right now he's a little tied up at the moment and they're like in stitches laughing and i'm sitting here like what is going on like this is funny to y'all because again i'd only been on a job five months mm-hmm. well you fast forward five years i was the one making those jokes because it's the way to cope with stuff yeah you know and and that kind of those things are tough um, and you've seen that. We've seen that in the media 
Um, and if the media could get a hold of one of those guys or this scenario, they would, you know, hang them out to dry. Oh, yes. Right? I mean, they would, you know, be like, these people deserve to be fired mm, and they're mm. awful and look at the human, you know. But it's not the, the point of this podcast is to explain to the general population anyone who is put in that situation under those circumstances with no support, no training, no previous mental health assessment or support, no continued mental health support, yep. no financial backing, you know, terrible schedules, terrible, you know, equipment that they're using to sleep on, to drive, to go to these things. Mm -hmm. The only way you can survive mostly is to function that way. Yeah. So when people get on their high horses and their their cancel culture and their you know, these people are awful, mm -hmm. like you have to understand that's the human condition. Yeah, that's just psychological one. You know, psychology one one. Yeah, we all end up being in there if we don't get out of that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unless right, you have those other things that are preset: healthy families, no trauma. You know, yeah. good coping skills. There are some people mm -hmm. who come from good families who become firefighters. Yeah, and they're better off. Mm -hmm. They have better skills. They know where to go to. They go to faith. They go to those things, and they can maintain being a fireman without things going completely off the rails. Mm -hmm. But those are the few, and the proud. Yeah. Right? those are the people who make it and can and do and are out there right now fighting yeah. to get the other fire department, the other police mm -hmm. department help. Yeah, you know, they're the guys on the unit going, hold on, this is not right. Yeah. And they're arguing and debating and going before Congress and, you know, they're trying to get, you know, yeah. change to happen. They are. And and the fire department does, again, it, it comes down to training. But who are you sending in to talk to these guys after they make a, a five-year-old that has drowned, mm -hmm. right? So then uh, that just recently happened. We used to have what they call critical incident stress debriefings. And essentially, you'd have a bunch of guys. You'd all show up at one station. You'd have a chief there. You may have a chaplain. Um, and you'd sit around and just talk about the run. And recently, uh, there was a call. I was talking with a, a buddy of mine, and a five-year-old had drowned. And they got together the next shift, you know, and they, they didn't really talk about it till they got off that day. And as soon as they came back in, they all got together. And as soon as they got to the station and they were having their debriefing, um, the guy leading the debriefing said, okay, I just... I want everyone in here, we're going to each take a turn and talk about what happened, what, what you saw on that run. So immediately they have someone who's, whose intentions are good, but they're just reliving it. Right, right. You know, no less than 24 hours afterwards. And unfortunately, they don't have the manpower to let someone have 24 hours off. And that's unfortunate. And the reason they don't have the manpower is because they're not able to pay them anything. Mm -hmm. It's not that the fire chief doesn't want to be able to hire people. A guy's not going to come work here as a fireman for $35,000 a year when he can go to Texas and make 50 starting out. Yeah. He'd be crazy to. Um, but a lot of them, you know, they, they try and do the best they can at these CISDs. Uh, you know, they'll have a chaplain show up, which is good. You know, there were several times the, the late Darrell Tuberville showed up at, at the station. And, man, I love when he would come by. And it was usually after a very traumatic run, and he would try. But, you know, again, that's when I was young and tough. And I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And then as soon as I got in the truck at 2.30 that afternoon to go home the next day, I'd just be in tears. Yeah, I think I think it goes with the systemic change is that if if you know that it's going to do any good, then you'd be more likely to do it. Because my question goes, you know, as guys, and I was the same way, like your instinct isn't, let me go share my problems. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to ask, why is that? Well, that's yeah. because there's a system in place that doesn't value it from mm -hmm. top down. Yep. From the, you know, from the government down to the, the lowest man on the totem pole. 
So if we can change it, which I think people are trying to, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of information now on firefighter suicide, PTSD. There's been a lot of good work in the last, you know, probably five years. Mm-hmm. I got to speak last year at the Louisiana Chiefs uh, conference to all the chiefs, and I talked about trauma and post-traumatic stress. But it, you know, those are band-aids on bullet holes, like we say. Like, yeah. it has to be a monthly, weekly. So they, I, I, you know. I want to have partnerships. I want people to have partnerships in their local areas with counseling practices like ours, where they get a discounted rate for counseling, where they can have a weekly check-in, where they can go, okay, I got three shifts, or I'm on a 48-hour shift, or I'm on three days, or whatever it is, and after this, I'm immediately, within a couple of days, going to go in, sit down, process, before I go in the next time. Absolutely. Because there's no way for us to make it perfect. There's no way for us to make traumatic things not traumatic. Mm-hmm. But we can certainly do a better job of supporting first responders, whether that's cops or firefighters, and making sure they're getting the care that they need. Yeah. Right. And so that when a situation happens and they sit down in this meeting, they're not expected to process right there in the moment. And we call it an AAR after, after action review. Mm-hmm. You know, we did a bunch of them, and it's like, yeah, and everybody's just laughing or making fun or making jokes or being sarcastic or poking fun at the one guy who's whatever. Yeah. And you know, that's not safe. Nope. So nobody gets to. And what I mean, safe is. You know, when we're in this fight or flight hypervigilant state, we can't get down into our emotions, which means we can't process out what we're really feeling, which is fear mm-hmm. and loneliness and sadness and anxiety and shame. And and so all we're doing as, as men and women is trying to just keep that going so we don't have to actually feel it. Yeah. But when you get into therapy and you're able to calm down and realize you're safe, then you can feel it. Well, then you process it. So when you go back, it's not there anymore. Yeah. Or it's very minimal. Mm-hmm. So then you can, you're can you not putting stones in your bag, as you say. Yeah. You're taking these stones out and going, okay, do I need to carry this anymore? No, I'm getting rid of this one. Or let's break it up into smaller pieces, and i got to carry some of it. But now it's yeah. just dust and a few rocks at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It's not this huge chunk yep. that I'm carrying around. Like You can't go through life and unscathed, but you can certainly go through life without you know a ton of rock, uh, you know, of rock in your bag that you're having to carry by yourself. Absolutely. And... I think that the guys that come around and try and help, you know, when when we have a tough run like that and the chaplain would come by and he's like, you know, guys, let me let me pray with y'all. And again, I'm at a different place in my faith now than I was then because now I actually have it. Um, but that's the last thing you want to hear It's like, I don't now it's not, I don't want to pray right now. Like there's right. nothing there's nothing you can say to Jesus for me right now that's going to make this OK. You know, this run that I just went on mm-hmm. and. I think it just starts with the training. I know in Shreveport, um, you know, I had the opportunity to go and speak at the academy and talk to some of the guys about my story. And um, the fire chief here in Shreveport is very supportive of the mental health. And actually, yeah, Bozier too. Yes, and and they uh, they just passed. I think it was last year uh, to where they have PTSD leave. It's like you can actually like so the the Shreveport Fire Department. And I can only speak to that one because it's the only one I worked on. You get 364 days of sick leave a year. So if you have an injury or an illness, you can be off 364 days. But as long as you come back for one shift, you could turn right back around and be off for another 364 days. And they and now they actually have a PTSD clause. But the problem is, is guys are abusing it. And I'm not saying that the ones that are taken off don't have some sort of trauma. But now it's like, Oh, I'll just, I don't feel like going to work for a few months. I'll just say I have PTSD, but they, they really, I'm not going to say that they don't, they use it for the wrong reasons. They're not seeking the proper treatment 
to help with it. Yeah, so that, that's what I was going to challenge you on. Like, I, I hear you, and, and I, I do agree that in all systems, it's kind of like talking about welfare and saying people are abusing it. Well, again, it's a systemic problem mm-hmm. because they need to be, there needs to be some accountability to using it. So if you're going to use it, you need to be going to a trauma-focused therapist, yes. like following up, doing some EMDR, you know, knowing that you're using it mm-hmm. to take a break, but also to build yourself back up so you can come back. So yeah. yeah, if somebody's using it, but they're not taking care of themselves and they're not mm-hmm. using any services, you know, time, you know, we have this cultural saying of time heals all wounds. So I'm just going to take some time off. Well, that's complete garbage. Like time only <laughs> yes. makes heal, only makes wounds fester. Yep. You know, unless you get in there and dig it out and clean it out and suture mm-hmm. it up, it's not going to heal, but that takes work. Yep. And that takes a community that doesn't, you know, somebody's not going to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, a person who's actually traumatized and in this system that you're talking about, yeah. They don't. They're not aware enough of their body, of their emotions, of their of the trauma. To go, they're just like I need off, and I'll use anything as an excuse to get off. Yep. And then they take take use this three. You know, oh, this is great. I'll take two months, like you said. Yeah. We have to have a system. The fire department has a system that has some accountability, that has some follow up care with that. I, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. No, yeah. that's exactly like making sure you're getting it from the right people who can help you. Mm-hmm. You know, because me as a pastoral counselor. There's a lot I can talk with those guys about. I've been in their shoes. I know what it's like. But when it comes to trauma in the EMDR, which you know is one of the things that helps yeah, save I was my life. Say, tell me. So I don't want to. I don't want to lose this part of it because I know we, we only got a certain amount of time. But um, so you you know we talked about kind of painted the picture of how bad it is. So tell tell me the story of how it got good. So when you if we're saying hey guys you need to go to therapy, tell me. Uh, that story and why that works and why you're so passionate about, you know, getting people into counseling and how it can change things. Yeah, absolutely, man. Glad you asked. Uh, For me, I'd hit rock bottom. You know, I had looked for drugs, alcohol, pornography, all these things to help fill a void. Um, And I had known I needed to talk to somebody for a while, you know, Uh, you know, another quick story. And again, I I tell it because it's all part of what led me to counseling Um, in 2015 about two months before I left the job, my grandmother committed suicide and she shot herself in the head and she, and she was mentally ill. I'm a lot more aware of her condition now at the time. I just thought, ah, she's just crazy. You know, like we, we weren't ever really close. Um, but she had shot herself in the head. Well, my mom called me and was like, Hey, you know, before your grandpa goes back home, like, is there someone we can hire to go clean this up? And I was like, no, nah, you don't, you don't have to hire anybody. I'll go do it. You know? And she's like, are, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. So me and my dad drive out to East Texas and, you know, I got a trash bag and some gloves and some uh, peroxide and some uh, bleach. And I go in there and I just start cleaning it up. And um, my dad had gone outside and uh, I walk outside and I'm holding two trash bags in my arms. And uh, he looks at me, he goes, are are you okay? I was like, yeah, why wouldn't I be? You know, I'm literally sitting there with my grandmother's brains in a trash bag. You know, in the, the home that I've only known them living in, like the childhood grandparents' home, like that we used to go to for Christmas, like I just cleaned all this up, man. There's a bullet hole in the season in, in the ceiling, and um, that's really that moment um, was very pivotal in the fact that I was like, okay, something's wrong. Like I I am not processing this. I have gone way too far. So and even then, identifying that it was another four years. And I'm essentially a full-on mental breakdown that led me to counseling. So I had my wife call a local counselor here. And um, 
and I, I didn't want to have to call in and make the appointment because I was still kind of like, I need it, but I'm a little too proud. And, you know, I heard the guy on the other line. He was like, listen, I'm glad you're calling for him, but I need to hear from him. He has to call in. <laughs> yeah. And I told her, I was Classic like, Classic therapist. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going then. I'm not doing it. Um, and this was, I guess, probably in June of, uh, of 18. And things just continued to get worse. I, it, well, in August 5th was when I had my first panic attack. And that's when I was finally like, okay, something's going on. I can't take care of myself anymore. The pills aren't working anymore. The marijuana's not helping anymore. Drinking doesn't numb anymore. Like, I'm, I'm literally dying here. Like, I, I would rather be dead than feel like this every day the rest of my life. I'd gotten to that point. You know, I was thinking, okay, how can I kill myself and make sure my wife still gets a life insurance policy? Yeah. Like I was planning it out. For sure. I, I, I read uh, last night or the night before when I was looking up some stuff um, that 80% of um, firefighters have suicidal ideation on a regular basis. Yeah. That means just they think about it. They don't, they're yeah. not saying I'm going to kill myself today, yeah. but it, it's a, you know, a very large majority of them yeah. think about it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard not to when you're surrounded by death. Yep. Um, so... I got in, I called a counselor and ended up, I was, it was a month wait, uh, which was really good. It gave me a lot of time for reflection because uh, a lot of people come in in crisis and that's good. We are here to help them as, as counselors, but you know, having to wait that time really helped me to focus in and start thinking about what I need help with. Well, then the day before my appointment, um, I tried to weasel out of it and I was like, I, I don't need to go. And and it's probably in 13 years of marriage, just the maddest Michelle's ever been at me, uh, because it was it was over forty dollars. Right. And she was like, "Are you kidding me? You spend forty dollars in cheeseburgers? You're telling me that you're oh, not you didn't want to spend, spend the money? No, I didn't yeah, want to yeah. spend the money because uh, I thought insurance should cover it all, which I do think that they should, but that's a whole nother can of worms. For sure. Um, you know, when it comes to this stuff, they 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 should take care of it, but we all know insurance and have our views on that. So anyway. I come in for my first session. I had no idea what counseling was going to be like. I thought it was going to be like in the TV shows where you have an old man with glasses with a piece of paper writing on it. And, you know, you're laying on a couch like a, a wounded puppy dog. And it was completely, and I'm not saying there are places that are like that, but that's not what I experienced. And it was then that the counselor I had that God brought into my life, there is nobody else that I could have seen that would have helped get me to where I am and get through it. Cause even then I was still struggling in my faith. I was like, I don't understand why all this is happening. Um, and my counselor, he met me right where I was, you know, and, and came right alongside me. He never rushed me. He never pried for information and counseling saved my life. And, and the way that he handled our sessions and I knew he, where he stood in his faith. And I, again, I checked off the boxes. I went to church and the majority of our marriage, I went just to shut my wife up because I was like, if I don't get up and go to church, she's going to clank the dishes and slam the door. And I'm like, this is going to be horrible, you know? So <laughs> I went to shut her up. Uh, and then I'd be on the phone, you know, playing fantasy football the whole time, waiting on the preacher to hush uh, so we could leave. So it, all this happened kind of around the same time to where the Lord started working in my life and he used my counselor to do that. Uh, and in and finding Jesus and, and essentially meeting and have be, being told about the real Jesus, right? And people, when I t tell this, they're like, what do you mean the real Jesus? There's a fake Jesus? No, there's people who misrepresent him and they don't tell you what the Bible actually says. 
Um, and my counselor told me that and showed me that. And now it wasn't all biblical. Like we dealt with trauma. We dealt with it. But I knew where he stood in his faith. And it was around the same time that I came to faith. And I was like, all right, you know, God, I've, I've been trying to do this on my own for a really long time without you. Um, I give up. Like I surrender. And uh, we did a lot of EMDR. Uh, that's why, you know, as soon as I have a client and trauma comes up, you know, I send them out because then I'm, I, I don't like tell them like you need EMDR, but I'm like, Hey, let me tell you what it did for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if it wasn't for Jesus and, and seeking counseling exactly when I did, I would not be here. I, I definitely think I would have ended up probably taking my own life because I was that miserable. And, but I had to get to a breaking point. I had to get to a, what I call rock bottom. Yeah. To where I look look up and I'm like, how did I get this low? And I mean, I had a beautiful, healthy wife, three healthy, beautiful children. Like I had no reason to feel that way. I had a, a house. I had a good job. And like, but I was suffocating on the inside. Yeah, man. I mean, you list those things off and, and you know, we do, you do it now every day, you know, and I do it every day. And it, it is, that's the paradox that we find ourselves in in America with everything, with anybody listening to this and, and they're like, Oh, that's my job or that's my life or that's my career. It might not be on the level of fire department, but it's certainly, we all have trauma and abuse and awful things we deal with. It may be an awful boss. It may be an awful spouse. It may be an abusive, you know, relationship or situation. And the reality is, is taking those things day in and day out and you look around, you're like, well, I shouldn't be depressed. I shouldn't be anxious. I shouldn't mm-hmm. like we should ourselves, right? I like to say you should your pants, Yep. you know, like, <laughs> And the reality is, is that if those things don't provide worth and value, right, you do not get worth and value from external things. It can mm-hmm. only come from within. And, yep. and so what we try to do here is integrate those two things is, is explain, you know, if you're not a Christian, then we won't talk about Jesus and we, mm-hmm. you know, we won't integrate, but we have to talk about some faith, right? Yeah. If it's faith in nothing. Yeah. How does that play into your belief system? How does that play into your thoughts and feelings? How does that play into your actions? Yeah. Because believing nothing certainly makes you think and feel certain things about life and people and certainly makes you behave a certain way. So no matter what, if you're a counselor worth your salt, you're dealing with people's spirituality and their underlying belief systems, even if that's not Jesus. Yeah. But for us, because we are Christian and somebody wants Christian therapy and they say, please, let's talk about that. Obviously, we let them lead that conversation without forcing or trying to convert them or anything like that. But being able to take the teachings of Jesus and integrate them with the science of psychology and worth and value and pain and you know how do you cope and and how does that play out like yeah it opens the door to healing in a way mm-hmm. that you know you can't really explain and EMDR you mentioned it is is for people listening is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and it's a tool that is used um, to help people reprocess some trauma so that it's not stuck in their body. There's a really good book, The Body Keeps the Score. There's a bunch yep. of other ones that help you understand that when you go through these traumas, it's not just in your brain, yep. right? It's it's in your body. It's in your spirit. It's in, in everything that you do. Um, and you carry that with you until you process it, mm-hmm. until you get it out. And it comes out, like you said, in all these different ways that you're not even aware of. Yep. So you just, you know, you just have pieces falling off of you and you think you're fine mm-hmm. and you're this walking zombie, you know, that just is missing pieces of yourself that you never realized, you know, got taken. Yeah. But with therapy, you can come in 
and be in a safe space. Calm your body down enough. Be with somebody, hopefully, that will engage with you in a way that doesn't judge you, that doesn't shame you, that doesn't trigger all these underlying things. And the reason they can do that is because they understand how it works. Yep. And because they're human. And if they're good, then they also are doing therapy. They're yep. also working on their self. You know, yep. they're also taking care of their own emotional needs and recognizing like, I'm just like the person on the couch. I just mm -hmm. have some years ahead in the game. Yep. You know, I've just done some more work. And so of course I'm a little less toxic. I'm a little more healthy because I've been doing the work longer, but mm -hmm. it doesn't mean I'm not capable of getting there again. If I don't keep doing the work, Yep. especially just like first responders as a therapist, you hear hard stuff all day mm -hmm. right here. You, you see pain, you see divorce, you hear about the death and you, and sometimes in some ways you don't see it, but you hear it in detail that's so overwhelming because it's the most vulnerable, real raw thing that somebody's ever shared with anybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you have to do extra work and that's, you know, I firmly believe in us here practicing what we preach, mm -hmm. you know, because that's the problem. If you're a first responder out there and you're listening, if you're not taking care of yourself, then you're not helping yourself or the people you're providing care for because you're not being able to come your full self. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times, you know, if as soon as you leave the fire station, you head straight to the bar. That's a very unhealthy coping mechanism, mm -hmm. you know, if that if that's what you run to. But, you know, to kind of, and I just thought about that when you were talking about the ongoing self-care. And you know, going back to therapy for a little while, um, you know, people don't know what to expect. They only have, have heard stories or maybe even horror stories about yeah. someone's uh, experience. on television. Absolutely. And, um, and there are a lot, you know, yes. just like... You know, every population is a subset of our population. So therapists, firefighters, police officers, everybody, there's, there's, you know, large groups of people who are unhealthy. So. Yeah. yeah, just because you pass a test and you can get qualified for something doesn't mean you actually need to be doing it. Right. Um, and that's in every industry, like you said. But um, there's nothing that I told my counselor that he ever looked at me and was shocked. Mm -hmm. Like he, he made me feel comfortable and, you know, it's, it's as you develop that relationship, but, uh, EMDR was a game changer for me. And that's why I recommend it to my clients. You know, as I'm sending them out, I, I tell them why I'm like, Hey, listen, there's a lot of things I can help you with, but this is something I can't. And I promise you going to see this, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, who is trained in EMDR, uh, it can it completely change your life and, and it did for me mm -hmm. and maybe not everyone has that experience i understand i'm sure it has a lot to do with the person who is doing it because like uh one of my relatives has had emdr by uh another place here in town and they were like that's the biggest sham i've ever had and <laughs> like i can't believe that they feel that way about it but given their experience i respect that for me it changed my life and you know, i was in counseling for just short of a year uh, and now I still, you know, seek help, uh, you know, from um, people that I can confide in that, that are trained and it helps because life is hard, man. 2020 has been very difficult for everybody. And um, I, I'm a firm believer that everyone needs someone to talk to. Like my friends probably get tired of me saying it. And I'm just like, everyone has something they need to get off of their chest. And you know, going back to the, the trauma, you know, and I, I think I've heard you say this before, uh, so I'm going to paraphrase, but it's don't compare traumas. You know, there, there's something that, you know, that may be traumatic for me that you may would look, well, you're not a good example because you're pretty compassionate when it comes to that, but <laughs> someone else like, you know, well, well, that was traumatic for you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. And, 
you know, when you start comparing that, well, what they're going through is worse than what I'm going through. So what I'm going through must not be that bad. Right. It's a survival technique, oh, though, right? Gosh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's helping you to survive so you don't actually have to deal with how bad it is for you. Yeah. You know, my analogy, and I think I've said this before, but one of the ones I love to give is to explain this um, is group therapy, right? You're sitting around in group therapy. There's, you know, a bunch of different people. There's an old man, you know, black, white, age difference. Um, and they go around and the therapist says, okay, we're going to tell the worst thing that's ever happened. The most traumatic thing that's ever happened. And mm -hmm. this guy's a war veteran and he tells war stories. And there's a firefighter and a police officer. And, you know, there's a doctor. And there's, you know, there's all these really horrible stories. And there's this little girl that's like 12 sitting next to the therapist. And you see her start to shake and cry about halfway through. And it comes around and it gets to her and... She they say, okay, it's your turn. And she's like, I don't want to go. And, you know, she, he says, no, you have, you're going to tell your story. You know, it's empowering to tell it. And, and of course, you wouldn't really do this in a therapy session. Yeah. But she says, um, you know, when I, you know, when I was younger, my dad made me stand up in front of the kitchen table on Thanksgiving and carve the turkey. Yeah. And the, th the, the thing about that is, is that no matter what, depending on what you've been through, your resiliency, your circumstances, your parenting, your life, it depends on how you, how situations are going to impact your body yes but she was having the same emotional physical responses to that experience that negative experience as the war veteran as the firefighter mm -hmm. in the moment your body takes over and it's not about rational thinking it's not about what the reality of the situation is it's about what the reality of the situation is for you mm -hmm. just like you said when you call people and they say this is an emergency come yeah right it's the same thing it you look at this little girl and go the war veteran might look at her and go, Oh my gosh, like you've seen nothing little girl. Like, but for her, her body's responding as if she had been in war. Mm -hmm. And so that's what people have to realize is, yeah, you cannot measure traumas, especially your own really any, please don't measure other people's trauma, but more yeah. than anything, if you're listening, whatever it is that you've gone through that is difficult for you, take a moment tonight, today and think, am I putting that off? You know, am I saying, well, it's not this, so I don't have a right to complain. Yeah. Because you do, and until you take ownership of that pain and that victimhood and that terrible situation you went through, you can't stop being a victim. Yeah. And so you, we put these labels on ourselves and go, oh, it wasn't that bad. And then we act like a victim all week, and we respond to things poorly, and we have negative responses, and you know, and we kind of play the victim card while never addressing the actual trauma and issues that we went through. Mm -hmm. And then it's on and on and on and on and it goes. Yeah. And so. I think as firefighters, if people can just go, yes, it's not whining, it's not complaining, it's acknowledging what you actually do and what the problems are and moving through those to be healthier, then we have some hope in our community because like you said, you guys are our friends, you're our neighbors, you're our fence builders, you're our carpenters, yeah. we're interacting with you. So if you're not healthy, you're our, you're our soccer team coaches. Mm -hmm. If you guys are going through all of this, and taking care of our families and being in relationship and being in, on the same pew at church, then it is affecting us mm -hmm. because we have to rely on you to be our community. Yeah. And if you're about to fall apart or desensitized enough to go clean your grandmother's brains up and put them in a bag without feeling it, yeah. then you're not going to be able to be there for us in our crisis in the way that we actually need. No. People not can cool. show up and they can put out fires and that's difficult. Yeah. But showing up and being available emotionally, mm -hmm. being present emotionally, sharing Christ in crisis yep. is more important than anything else. And I think we flip that value and we think, well, you know, what's valuable is these performing things, is having the house, is having the marriage, is having these things, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, you know, 
being safe in the external things and not yeah. internally being safe and secure. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of go back to the spiritual side of it, talking about, you know, Jesus and, and what he can do. Um, had a guy actually this morning tell me this, and I thought it was just so profound. He said, you know, if you lock yourself in a dark room and pray for a hot dog, you're going to starve to death. Right. And I thought it was great, you know, because we have a part to play. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, can he do anything and heal anything and restore it? Absolutely. But he's not going to do for us what he's given us the ability to do for ourselves. It's like we have to, we have a part to play in it. And that's where seeking that help, asking, man, it doesn't make you weak. If, if you think it's strong and you're going on your second divorce and you don't have a real good relationship with your kids, but you're still considered tough around other first responders because <laughs> I've been through some things, you know? No, no that, that's horrible. Like your, your world's crumbling around you. And a lot of times your inability to, you're, you being in denial keeps you from making progress. Oh yeah. Well, they're in so much pain that they, they, you know, they're in denial. We blame, we shame ourselves, we withdraw, right. And we control. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful way of putting it is that if you're that person you're and you're the guy and it's everybody else's fault, that the, the yeah. things are this way, mm-hmm. it goes back to, uh, you're really being a victim. You're not being strong. You're in this victim mentality where the world's against you, God's against you, all these people are against you, your kids are against you, and there's only one common denominator. Yep. And the reality is, as the gospel says, that even in that, even not your worst, Christ is there for you, with you, can overcome those things that we have no ability to overcome. And so, you know, if people are listening, just know that, you know, there is hope, there is care, there is support. You just have to take the first step of reaching out. Mm -hmm. And there are people in this community who are available and there are, you know, you know, I know I will tomorrow if a fire chief calls me or a captain calls me and says, Hey, we want to change this system. I'll be the first one. And I know you will too, to go over and sit down and have coffee and lunch and go, Hey, um, you know, what can we do? Let's figure out, let's stop putting band-aids on things. Let's figure out how to change system, you know, systems over time to where in five years in Treeport and Bossier, things look much different in five years, things nationally look much, much different. And, and guys, are less likely to commit suicide, less likely to get a divorce, yeah. more more present at the at the job, because we have to put value in these people who are serving us. Like you guys serve, you are the few, right? You are the ones who do the some of the hardest things, and we need to value that as a society way more. Yeah, and I don't know how much time we got left, but I do want to hit on this: is it's a it's a culture thing to where it's we've always done it this way. So we're going to continue to do it this way. Mm-hmm. So like at the fire department, um, Monday through Saturday, the wake up bell goes off at 7 AM. It, uh, on Sunday, it goes off at 8 AM and you have, uh, officers that come from the old school to where it's like, no matter how many runs you made, no matter what you've done this shift, um, at 7 AM, you're getting up, you're taking that bed, you're rolling it up and you're putting it in your locker. And you're not getting off till three o'clock that day. So you have guys just completely exhausted because the mentality is, well, well, this is how my chief and captain did it in, in 1980s. And it's like, okay, well, if that were the case, why are we using indoor plumbing? Cause we could just go use outhouses. Right. Like when you have stuff that's available to you, you need to use it. And there've been sleep studies. You know, the number one killer on duty of firefighters is heart attacks. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not fires. And it's because of the sleep pattern. I mean, you go from, I don't even know if you can get into a deep REM cycle, you know, but I mean, you're laying there in bed in a twin size mattress, you know, and 
next thing you know, the bell goes off and you're going to do this and like the toll it takes on your body and your heart. And you do have some really good officers that are like, hey, go take a nap. You guys go lay down. But then you also have some that are still stuck in the old way uh, where they're like, oh, no, you, you don't lay down in the bed at the fire station from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. But this guy's literally got zero sleep. Mm-hmm. And the, the culture has to change. The, uh, and it goes back to the training, you know, because that takes a toll on a lot of guys. Yeah, and I think it, like we're trying to do today, people, you know, explaining how these things work, what, it, what the actual things that go through, having conversations about it, even though they're tough, you know, not to place blame on people, but to get to the root causes of these problems so that we can treat them. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, if people aren't honest, then we just keep treating symptoms and the cycle keeps happening. So, you know, Andy, I'm super proud of you for all that you're doing, the work that you've done in therapy, the work to become a counselor and to, you know, be here and helping us. And, you know, I'm, I'm honored to have you on staff so that we can help those first responders in our area so that we can give them an easy door to open and say, hey, not only like do we value this and we're saying it, but we, we've experienced it, you know, yes. not me as a firefighter, but you as a firefighter, me as a, mm-hmm. you know, being a veteran, you know, we have people on staff who have all been in therapy, worked through trauma, know what our trauma is, understand it on different levels. So, you know, anybody out there who's struggling can find somebody who, um, you know, they can relate to and connect with. And on a national level, you know, for people listening to this, not in Treeport, Louisiana, you know, support your firemen. Go by, bring them something, bring them some cookies, step in, stop by and check on them, see how they're doing, ask how they're doing, you know, really care about the people in your communities, if they're at your church, if they're at your synagogue, if they're at wherever they are that you see them, that they're firemen, that they're first responders, military cops, you know, treat them um, with respect, treat them with a little knowledge now of what they've gone through. And that can make all the difference in the world. Um, we always like to end with kind of asking why. So what's one thing, Andy, that you're kind of asking why in your life right now? Mm. What's a question that you'd like answered? Why can't we all get along? <laughs> yeah. That's a I good know one. We'll, we'll never get that answer, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, we got some of it from last night's debate. That, mm. You know, when, when the top two people, you know, who we're supposed to look up to and our children are supposed to look up to um, represent that way on a live debate, um, mm. you know, they're really just a reflection of what they see and yep. how we've all contributed to the problem. It's not their fault. Yeah. You can blame the presidents, you know, the vice president, and the president all day. But the reality is, is we have to check ourselves and go, why can't we get along? Yeah. Like individually, why am I not getting along with the people in my life? Mm-hmm. Am I prideful? Am I arrogant? Am I angry? Am I hurt? Maybe I need to do some counseling and work through this. Maybe I need to set some boundaries. And, you know, people aren't doing that. And we're looking at social media and social media looks just like the debates. It does. The debate floor last night looked just like the social media accounts that followed this morning on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. You know, just hate anger, one-sided focus, ignoring mm. the complete other side. Um, yeah. And then there's, you know, I would say, you know, the moderates in the middle going, this is a dumpster fire. Like, can't yeah. we all just agree that this is terrible and, and find, you know, answers in the middle? So, yeah, I think we're all trying to figure out, you know, why is it we can't get along? And I think a lot of that's unresolved trauma. And it is. You know, the more people understand, you know, their background and their story, and the more you, you do that work, the more you start to have empathy for others and realize, mm-hmm. you know, both Biden and Trump, they are, you know, human beings who have backstories, who have mental issues, who have trauma, who, don't, you know, I don't know if they go to therapy or not, 
but in the way that they respond and act, it doesn't look like somebody who's done the work yeah. or they wouldn't be letting the other person dictate their worth and value mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be responding in a way that, you know, is just playing two wrongs, you know. Yeah. So it's, anyway. It's brutal, man. Yeah, it was awful. Well, you guys out there, thanks for checking in with us and listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe, uh, asking why. You can catch us every Friday morning. We launch at 7 o'clock live. Um, Andy Bond, Christian Counselor, ex-fireman. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, have I a good day. It. You too. All right. God bless you guys.